0: In their time, episode 25, Counter Revolution in Lederhosen. Last week, we covered the failure of the German Revolution through most of the country, but there is one region that had a more self contained experience during these days. Bavaria has always been the least culturally integrated of the old German states that formed the empire. Where the Prussians in Berlin and the north were Protestant and dreary, The Bavarians to the south were Catholic and noisily annoying. The Southerners held no small distaste for rule coming from Berlin, and they had managed to keep a decent measure of autonomy within the imperial state. Now that the empire had crumbled and the central government was beset by a civil war, it was the perfect time to drift away and go out on their own again. The collapse of the economy only encouraged separatist dreams of an independent nation. What that exit would look like, though, was bickered about relentlessly within Bavaria. The traditional powers had been the nobility, with the support of other landowners and the middle class. They favored regional autonomy, but definitely along very centrist lines. The existing authorities in the area would be maintained. They would just answer less and less to Berlin. And that would be kind of in keeping with the traditional picture of a Bavarian conservative in a country bumpkin sort of way. There was a problem with this, though. The traditional picture of what it meant to be Bavarian was changing. Munich was a major urban center for the entire nation, and its industries had brought along with it a viable working class, which, like their counterparts to the north, were being progressively radicalized by the collapse in living conditions and the general unraveling of society in the aftermath of World War I. The war, for its part, had encouraged the growth of industry still more, which only increased the working class in Munich. And to top it all off, Munich was a transportation hub, which included demobilizing soldiers. In the days immediately after the war, 50,000 of them happened to be in the city, and like the soldiers I've described in earlier episodes, they didn't want any part in helping reestablish the old order and were willing to hear out enterprising revolutionaries offering them a better deal in an uncertain world. Initially, the major player on the revolutionary scene was one Kurt Eisner. He had been an SPD functionary in Munich, who eventually grew publicly disillusioned enough with the war that he was thrown in jail. He was released just in time for the collapse of the imperial state, and on November 7th, 1918, he commandeered what had been an otherwise humdrum strike and led the workers into Munich's parliament building. There, he proclaimed the Bavarian Free State, and that the Bavarian king was to be considered deposed. Just as a note, uh, after Germany was unified, Bavaria was allowed to keep its king as sort of a uh, sub-monarch underneath the Kaiser. The reigning King Ludwig III took the hint and bailed on the city. The state that Eisner now found himself presiding over was a patchwork of councils, both worker and military, controlling the cities and countryside of Bavaria. Eisner himself had to rely on support from the local SPD, which had definitely given no prior approval for his impromptu seizure of power and didn't feel particularly loyal to him despite their shared history. Then there was the bourgeois, which was, at best, deeply suspicious of his socialist background. Finally, there really wasn't any basis for the councils to be loyal to him either. Yeah, he talked a big game about reforms, but he didn't have any tools to put his words into action. In January, he held an election to assemble a Bavarian government, and his faction of the SPD garnered a pitifully small fraction of that vote. Still there was no viable replacement so he continued on as a head of government with no real base of support. It shouldn't be a surprise that nothing really happened from a legislature standpoint, and conditions steadily got worse in Bavaria in general, and Munich in particular. The news of the violence in the rest of the country put everyone ill at ease, as they must have figured that eventually those new Free Corps units would eventually be sent down south. Eisner recognized that he wasn't going to break out of the limbo he found himself in, and on February 21st, 1919, he slipped a resignation letter into his pocket and started walking over to Parliament to submit it. On the way, though, he was ambushed by an ex-officer right-wing count and gunned down in the street. In death, Eisner had far more in effect than the last months of his life. The working class of Bavaria immediately saw his murder as a sign that the bourgeois were moving to curb their newly won influence on society. The fact that his murderer was a count really helped that idea along. The various councils took control of Bavaria, and the state government, only elected in January, was totally powerless to stop it. Councils, though, had a great deal of trouble coordinating their actions, and the separate cities were not self-sufficient enough to function on their own. There were now food shortages, power outages, delays in transportation, and a general lack of fuel for heating. Meanwhile, the elected parliament, standing around awkwardly in Munich, was taken over by a man named Johannes Hoffmann, the local leader of the SPD. He was formally made leader of the Bavarian government on March 17th, but ran into the same problems Eisner had, namely that there was no state apparatus in place that would allow him to actually govern. Plus, there was an immediate scheme hatch to try and set up a coalition government that cut Hoffmann out of the picture entirely. Another SPD functionary named Scheppenhorst had tried to set up a government with representatives of the SPD, USPD, and KPD, basically all the PDs, with the acknowledged backing of the Bavarian councils. This plan fell through, though, when the more left-wing parties firmly rejected working with the increasingly centrist SPD. At this point, the SPD's legitimacy among workers' movements had been torn apart all over Germany what with the whole, uh, violent repression thing, and the leftists weren't going to let themselves be sold out by them again. This kind of caught Scheppenhorst off guard, as he figured they would jump at the idea of forming an explicitly socialist state. Despite the setback, the plan moved forward, and on April 7th, the Bavarian Soviet Republic was declared, without the backing of the far left, and with the KPD, in fact, firmly boycotting the entire thing. The whole rollout was a disaster, with its leader spot eventually falling to a member of the USPD, Ernst Toller, who came from a background of, let me just check my notes here, expressionist poetry. Huh, how about that. For his part, uh, Toller would mostly try and just play the part of a leader as he imagined it in his head, which, to be fair, given the success of everyone else so far, was just as effective as trying to actually govern Bavaria. His appointed cabinet, too, also came off as kind of a sick joke. All of them were non-entities, and one, a notable Dr. Lipp, was made foreign minister after having been released from an insane asylum. The good doctor claimed a personal friendship with the Pope, declared his intent to invade Switzerland, and wrote a letter to Lenin describing Noske's guerrilla hands. Scheppenhorst, the guy who actually got this entire ball rolling, uh, decided to head up north to Nuremberg under the pretext of canvassing some support. Of course, once he got there, the local SPD functionaries informed him in no uncertain terms that he had messed up uh, very badly, which convinced Sheppenhorst to turn on his creation and instead gather support to dismantle the new government in Munich. Meanwhile, Johannes Hoffmann took a look at his supporters in Munich, and then a look at the 40,000 unemployed and destitute who had just come out of a hard winter and were getting desperate, and made the decision that being in the city at that moment wasn't a good idea. He had been working on getting the various councils outside of Munich on his side, but leftist agitation was accelerating way too fast for him to handle. Now he was being cooed by a clique of social misfits play-acting at government. He decamped the original breakaway Bavarian government northward to the city of Bamberg to put distance between him and his new enemies and Of course, the left's position in Munich was getting grimmer by the day because in those days nothing got better. The city was heavily isolated, and most Bavaria was conservative from the get-go and The revolutionary feeling of November nineteen eighteen had largely dissolved. The middle class was rallying against the revolution, the Roman Catholic Church which actually was an active and powerful force in Bavarian life, was dead set against anything that smacked of socialism or communism, and the workers' councils outside of Munich were willing to work with Hoffman. Once in Bamberg, Hoffman ordered a blockade of Munich, cutting the city off from food and supplies. He was playing a tricky double game, as he needed to crush the city, but he still wanted to maintain Bavarian autonomy by not calling in help from Noske in Berlin. But without a free corps unit of his own, Hoffman would, at least momentarily, have to settle for starving the city out. On April 12th, less than a week into Toller's government, there was a coup against the Bavarian Soviet, which consisted really of only Munich at this point. Hoffman had bribed a right-wing militia active in the city to seize the Soviet's leadership. Oddly enough, the workers of the city did not take kindly to the removal of their favorite poet, and they rushed into the city center en masse personally led a group of the workers, and the militia was overwhelmed. The workers, though, were probably understandably not willing to restore Toller to a leadership role. The communists tried to salvage some of the situation in Bavaria by dispatching Eugene Levine to take control. Levine proved to be far more effective as a leader than his predecessors, granted the bar on that was installed in the floor. First and foremost, Levine was a realist, and arrived in Munich knowing full well that if it came to a fight, he would probably lose badly, especially given what was happening elsewhere in Germany. He downsized the local KPD, keeping within the party only those who had been proven reliable, and established a local KPD newspaper to build support among the populace. The point of his government was not to take over the whole of Bavaria as a long-term state, but rather to push the communist ideology and create a viable base for future action. He had a brief window, where the largest urban center in the region was in communist hands, and he wanted to make the most of it to get the party's message out to the admittedly unlikely audience of Bavaria. The workers' councils were totally reorganized in Munich, and this time they agreed to adhere to the KPD's leadership. More than 10,000 rifles were distributed to the workers' groups, to defend the city and help restore order. This coalesced into a kind of red army of 25,000 worker-soldiers. Over in Bamberg, Hoffman had managed to raise 8,000 armed troops of his own from the local middle-class population. He was unnerved by the communist success in building a functioning government in so short a time, and worried that the various councils in Bavaria might be more willing to look that way now that the obviously crazy taller government had been replaced. Plus, he knew full well that the blockade on Munich was having an effect. Hunger was stalking the city. No matter how effective the leadership, a government has to keep its people fed to function. So, he decided to roll the dice and sent in his smaller force down south to see if he could snatch up an easy win before Levine could dig in for the long haul. Hoffman's force moved southward, and in response, a Bavarian Red Army force moved to meet them. It was a force led by Ernst Thaler. Yes, the Communists sent their army into the field, led by the Expressionist poet. Oh boy, I wonder what's going to happen. But hey, surprise, the two armies met on April 18th around the city of Dachau. Yes, that Dachau, uh, just to the northwest of Munich. Thaler actually performed well, leading his ad hoc army against another ad hoc army. The Reds got the support of the local workers, and Hoffman's force was soundly beaten and sent fleeing back to Bomberg. Hoffman did not take the defeat well. Realizing that he was running the risk of the Red Army breaking his blockade and cities going over to them, he swallowed the bitter pill and got in touch with Berlin. Noske pretty much confirmed for Hoffman that this working partnership was not going to be an equal one. 30,000 Free Corps troopers were going to be sent in under General Oven, and no, I'm not making that name up, and Noske would be in overall control. Any future Bavarian army would be firmly incorporated into the national one, which would mean that any attempt at separatism would not have an organized military force backing it, in which case good luck with that goal. The force started moving in on April 27th, and by that point the Bavarian Soviets' initial joy at its victory had already turned sour. The city's starvation had brought activity to a halt, and the more moderate elements started pushing against the communists. Taller, Who was given a big self-esteem boost for his win in Dachau, was openly agitating against Levy. It is ironic that Hoffman's original plan of starving the city out without calling in the Free Corps would have worked had he just kept his cool a week or two longer. Attempts were made from the USPD in Munich to arrange a deal or a transfer of power, but the Free Corps, as in virtually every other case, had none of it. They marched through southern Bavaria, with their usual trail of summary executions. And by the time they reached Munich proper on May 1st, most of the Soviet's leadership had fled. They marched into the city, backed again by a bombardment from artillery and aircraft, and they started hunting down and murdering as many communists as they could get their hands on in Munich. The exception being Toller. He was actually just arrested and allowed back into public life later. I guess they didn't see him as much of a threat. Or maybe they were just fans. The crackdown on communists and suspected communists was wild and egregious. And in one notable example, a detachment of troopers strolled into a religious discussion club and just decided to murder 20 people. Probably because in the eyes of the Free Corps, discussion clubs are pretty much automatically communist. Now, the normal number of reported murders in the Sack of Munich was around 1200. However, keep in mind this number is likely far higher, As to borrow a phrase from last week's episode, this was definitely a blood-infused atmosphere. Levin himself was arrested, put on trial, and duly executed. During the trial, he memorably informed the court that the Social Democrats start, then run away and betray us, the Independents fall for the bait, join us, and then let us down, and we Communists are stood up against the wall. We Communists are all dead men on leave, Of this, I am fully aware. Personally, I really like that quote because I think it sums up very succinctly this entire sad revolution. Levine had formed a viable government, but it had simply come too late and suffered from too many disadvantages to erase the memories of the more ineffective Eisner and Toller. The upper and middle classes had been completely traumatized by the entire experience, As they had seen their precious material standing stripped away from them for a time and their place in society threatened. Anyone with the experience of an American suburbanite seeing their social respectability or property value plummet would understand how normal morality or civility goes out the window and the animal instinct of preservation kicks in nearly instantly. So, too, did this occur in Bavaria. Faced with traditional society being upended, the reactionary movement kicked into high gear almost immediately. Bavaria, and Munich in particular, turned into a bastion for reactionaries of every ilk. It is not a coincidence that it will be here that the Nazi party incubates, not to mention any number of far-right groups decrying the class warfare of communism while still offering an alternative to the emerging liberal order. All right, whew, that's a lot of fragmentation and chaos for Germany, wasn't it? And to be sure, I didn't touch on exactly everything, but we've hit upon most of the major centers of revolution and suppression. The showdown between left and right that wrapped up by early summer 1919 created an uneasy peace. Much of the far left had been crushed and driven into the ground, especially in places like Berlin and Munich. The Ruhr still remained a stronghold of laborers' power, but by and large, the nation had been pacified. The primary downfall of the revolutionary movement was that it emerged piecemeal during the winning days of World War I. The SPD should have been the mortar holding the working class bricks together. But when that group fell in with the autocracy, only breakaways from the party were able to offer fitful political backing. The SPD was the known socialist brand in Germany, and the USPD and communists were tasked with establishing trust among the masses and internal coherence in a very short time frame. And as we've seen, it didn't work out well for them. Even the onset of deprivation and hardship didn't magically impart a coherent ideology in the workers either, something identified early on by Rosa Luxemburg. Her advocacy for peaceful measures and avoiding confrontation, preferring instead to agitate and organize the workers of the country before making a move to revolution, was likely the only viable pathway to truly toppling the old Germany. The problem she and her colleagues in the KPD ran into was that the mass of workers were demanding immediate action without agreeing to just what that action should be. On top of that, the KPD was by far the smallest faction on the leftist scene, which was split into three main groups, including itself. And while they were the ones to stand and do the fighting, They were also the ones to do much of the dying, too. The USPD, the independent, breakaway part of the SPD proper, had proven to be unreliable partners in revolution. And while they certainly were genuine in pushing socialist policies, they also lacked the will to agitate against the state or maintain a long-term effort. Through multiple strikes and council takeovers across regions and cities in Germany, they were among the first to take the streets. But when the state reimposed itself, they sought to negotiate their way out of a conflict. And in every case, they melted away and went back home. The SPD proved to be even more two-faced. Let's put this in perspective. For decades, the German far-left had been the SPD. It encompassed the whole of the socialist movement. But a funny thing happened to much of its rank and file once it became begrudgingly accepted into the German political scene. Many of its members, including Ebert, were legit, for lack of a better term. They identified with the German state and whatever desire many of them had to topple the system and raise up the proletariat, dwindled. For many, World War One ignited a nationalism that made them no longer look at the world in an international socialist manner. Now, this shift wasn't uniform across the entire party, but even when breaks occurred, like in the case of the USPD, connections were still maintained among members. And the shift in outlook certainly wasn't publicized heavily to the working class base of the party either. So, when revolution came in the closing days of the war, it was, naturally, the SPD that people looked to for leadership. Much of the party's leadership, most prominently in this narrative, Ebert and Noske, did not at first seek to crush the revolutionary movement, but rather to stall it and calm the fervor on the streets where possible. The intent was to maintain the German state as it had been, with no further disruptions. And only once the situation stabilized, start introducing reforms bit by bit. The SPD justified this to itself by reminding everyone that while there was an armistice at the end of the war, they were still very much so in a state of war that they had lost. Terms had to be drawn up, and the reason it went that if a standard liberal democracy was in power to be a party to that peace, well, maybe, just maybe, the Entente would be a little more merciful they would probably frown on a full-scale socialist revolution, much less a full-scale communist one. The class grudges that arose in the painful war years had to be put aside for now in order for the nation to be rebuilt. And that brings us to the great tragedy that the SPD ran into. They abandoned the socialist agenda in favor of becoming a bridge faction between the proletariat and the bourgeois. As of the winter of 1918 and 1919, They still commanded the loyalty of the bulk of the working class, if only because of inertia. Most of the other political parties in the center had been too associated with the failed imperial government and too small to take a leadership role during those chaotic initial months. So the SPD stepped in, biebered at its head, and set about restoring as much of the German state as they could. They didn't want to revolutionize German society, and only made vague assurances toward the eventual socialization of the economy. What they meant by this socialization they didn't really elaborate upon. The SPD would eventually deliver a shorter working day and a wage hike for the lower class workers as token gifts, but the positions of the bourgeois in society were never threatened. That acquiescence would haunt Ebert and the SPD as their partners in the far right monarchist officer corps only supported them in those early days because they had no other choice, and the forward to moving on from the SPD and getting more class acceptable political partners in the future and in selling out, the SPD burned many of their bridges to the working class that they had come from. Cheered on by Noske and the SPD leadership, the Free Corps beat, shot, and bombed their way across Germany as a sanctioned instrument of government power, composed of the traumatized, the dead-enders, and the most spiteful of the far-right. In those months of counter-revolution, the SPD set militarized reactionaries upon their own base of support. The workers who had turned out in droves for the SPD in the January 1919 elections were rewarded with violence and extrajudicial killings. By the end, the workers had been physically and figuratively beaten down. This created a rather awkward status quo once the dust had settled. The SPD under Ebert was still in charge, but they had ditched their socialist past to become much more center-left party without removing the stigma of socialism in the eyes of their reactionary partners. The Free Corps despised the SPD, and perceived it as just another revolutionary danger, despite all evidence to the contrary. For anyone in the modern day who might shake their head at conservatives branding every liberal as a socialist, you'll probably understand. The Free Corps had joined the fight under the direction of a leadership composed of army officers, who themselves received the blessing of General Groner and the General Staff. The Army General Staff itself had no love for the new government and was quite open in preferring some kind of restoration of the monarchy further down the road, once it became a little more politically acceptable both internally and internationally. So now we have a situation where a weak civilian government headed by a formerly leftist party with severe identity issues is governing in coalition with bourgeois parties who had largely stayed out of the whole fight are backed by an army whose true loyalties lie with a state that has just been replaced, and reactionary militias who had just conquered most of the nation. Germany, to say the least, can really use a breather right now. That's too bad, because with the left out of the way, it's time for the Free Corps and the far right to start intriguing against the young Weimar Republic, which we will be covering next week. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.